1: Welcome to season two of Terry's Mysterious Moments. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you find something interesting, or maybe something spooky, or maybe something just mysterious. <laughs> everybody, it's me, Terry from Texas, with this week's show. I want to talk to you a little bit, at first, about movies that we watch. I, for one, have been interested in ghost stories, in hauntings, in not necessarily horror, as in slasher-type movies, but sit on the edge of your seat, wonder what's fixing to happen, and throw your popcorn over the people next to you when it does kind of movies I have for a long time been interested in this kind of film and in 1965 or whenever it was when the ghost of Mr. Chicken came out my brother took my other brothers and I to see it so from a very young age I've been watching these kind of movies the original 13 ghosts that was done by William Castle, I believe. Just a bundle of movies that I've grown up watching and books that I've read. I read the original Amityville Horror when it came out. I read it all in one night. That's how deeply I got into the book. And here's my feeling on the Amityville Horror. It may have been a hoax, in order for the family to get out from under the mortgage, it may have been. But the book, the story was so well written and included all of the things that needed to keep you interested. And when the movie came out, they just transferred that to the screen. The movie was excellent. The story was excellent. Whether it was true or not, I don't know but that's what makes a good movie and a good story is that you don't care whether it's true or not the movie poltergeist bothered me it, it just it gave me terrible feelings at the end of it and I don't consider it to be a great movie it's it's a good movie but it's too much of a jump scare kind of feature for me and to have the little lady that did the psychic is just funny to me. It, it was good, but it was just funny to me. Well, that's not what I'm going to talk about this week. I'm not going to talk about those movies. I am going to talk about a movie, though. But it's a movie that was based on an actual situation that occurred in California in the early, mid-70s. The case was called The Entity case and if you remember the movie The Entity actress named Barbara Hershey portrayed a, a single mother three kids who was being attacked by a an invisible entity in her home going so far as to being beaten and she by her own words raped by this spirit or these three spirits in fact and the movie came out in 1982. It's considered a horror film by everybody except the director. And he believes it to... He, he considered it to be a suspense movie. A horror suspense movie. Which is okay. You can look at it that way. Not everything has to be horror. But Frank Felita got a hold of the story and wrote wrote the book that the movie was based on the, that, and the book and the movie were both based on this real situation it stars Barbara Hershey as a woman who was raped and tormented by an invisible assailant as I said earlier and despite being filmed and planned for a release in 1981 the movie was not released in worldwide theaters until September of 82 and February of 83 in the United States like the novel the film was based on the Norris Bither case. This is the story according to the movie. Of course, they, they change names. So, single mother, Carla Moran, is violently raped in her home by an invisible assailant. A subsequent episode of poltergeist activity causes her to flee with her children to the home of her friend, Cindy Nash. They return to Carla's home And the following day, Carla is nearly killed when her car mysteriously goes out of control in traffic. Urged by Cindy to see a psychiatrist, Carla meets with Dr. Schneiderman and tentatively agrees to undergo therapy. A subsequent attack in her bathroom leaves bite marks and bruises, which Carla shows to Dr. Schneiderman. But in his great intelligence, he believes that she inflicted the the injuries to herself that despite the marks showing up in places impossible for her to reach, that she's the one that caused them. It is through this that we learn that Carla suffered a variety of traumas in her childhood and adolescence, including sexual and physical abuse, teenage pregnancy, and the violent death of her first husband. Dr. Schneiderman believes her apparent paranormal experiences are delusions resulting from her past psychological trauma. Reasonable expectation, I would assume. Carla is attacked again, this time in front of her children. Her son tries to intervene, but he is hit by an electrical discharge and his wrist is broken. Dr. Schneiderman urges her to commit herself to a psychiatric hospital for observation, but she refuses. After Cindy, Carla's friend witnesses an attack. The two discuss possible supernatural causes. While visiting a local bookstore, Carla happens to meet two parapsychologists, whom she convinces to visit her home. Initially skeptical, they witness several paranormal events and agree to study the home. During their study, Dr. Schneiderman arrives and confronts Carla, trying to convince her that the manifestation is all in her mind, but she dismisses him. Reassured that her case is being taken seriously, Carla begins to relax. Her boyfriend, named Jerry Anderson, visits and she suffers a particularly disturbing attack, which he witnesses. Hearing the commotion, Carla's son enters a room and believes that Jerry is harming his mother, prompting him to attack Jerry. Later at the hospital, Jerry is so troubled by the experience that he ends their relationship and just walks away. Desperate for a solution to her problem, Carla agrees to participate in an elaborate experiment carried out by the parapsychologist. A full mock-up of her home is created to lure the entity into a trap. Liquid helium will be used to freeze the entity when it's inside. Before the experiment can begin, Dr. Schneiderman again unsuccessfully tries to convince Carla to leave. The entity arrives, but unexpectedly takes control of the liquid helium jets and uses them against Carla. She defiantly stands up to it, stating that it can never have her. Dr. Schneiderman rushes in and saves her. As they look back, they see the entity frozen for a brief period in a very large mass of ice. It eventually breaks free and vanishes, but Dr. Schneiderman realizes that Carla was telling the truth the whole time. She returns to her house the next day. The front door slams by itself and she is greeted by a demonic voice which says, and I will delete the sexual slur that is spoken. Carla turns and simply opens the door, exits the house, gets in a car with her family and leaves.
2: You know your favorite sparkling water, bubbly? Well, guess what? It just got better because bubbly is growing its family. That's right, bubbly now has bubbly burst. Bubbly burst is a sparkling water beverage with extra fruit flavor. An extra burst of fruit flavor for an extra burst of fun. There's zero sugar added, it's low calorie. It's the refreshing bubbles that you love in bubbly, but It's 1% juice. Each sip is filled with a flavorful refreshment that adds a burst of fun and happiness to your day. And just like choosing amongst your favorite child, it's impossible. There's so many good flavors. Peach mango, triple berry, cherry lemonade, watermelon lime, pineapple tangerine, and tropical punch. I can't choose a favorite. But don't take my word for it. Try it for yourself today. Find Bubbly Bursts in
1: a store near you. A closing disclaimer verifies that Carla and her family have moved to Texas. Carla still experiences attacks from the entity, although they have lessened in frequency and severity. In a rare interview with Rue Morgue magazine in July 2012, director Sidney J. Fury told journalist Michael Doyle that he did not consider the entity to be a horror film in spite of its extreme imagery, unsettling atmosphere, and horrific plot. Instead, Fury said he considers the Entity to be more of a supernatural suspense movie. He also confessed that he intentionally avoided researching the actual case upon which the Entity is based, as he, quote, did not want to judge the characters and the story in any way. Neither he nor the actress Barbara Hershey met with Doris Bither, the real-life Carla Moran, either prior to, during, during or after the shooting of the film was completed in 1981. Also speaking with Michael Doyle in the same issue of Rue Morgue, actor David Labiosa, who plays Carla Moran's teenage son Billy, the oldest child, revealed that Sidney J. Fury had dropped an entire dream sequence and plot thread from the entity, which featured Carla being forced by the entity to have incestuous thoughts about her own son. Labiosa believes that the aspect of this film was too controversial and sexually charged for audiences in the early 80s and was excised. The real-life Carla Moran's teenage son described a particularly vicious attack in which Carla was thrown by the malevolent force and hit her head. He tried to intervene, but he was also thrown. This is the when he was hit by the electrical charges I mentioned earlier. He tried to intervene but was also thrown, breaking his arm. David Labiosa recently informed Rue Morgue that during the shooting of this very scene in the Entity, he actually broke his arm in an accident. This bizarre coincidence resulted in Labiosa missing a few days of filming and being written out of several scenes in which his character was originally to have been featured. The arm cast which he is seen wearing was hastily written into the film. I don't know why they would have done that if the son actually broke his arm in real life and the actor broke his arm in the movie it would have just added a little bit of realism. But I'm not in the movies. In 1982 the film called The Entity was unleashed on American cinema goers and this terrifying experience followed a young woman as she was sexually assaulted and tormented by an unseen force. In this case, reality is more frightening than fiction because the true story behind the entity is a much more harrowing ordeal than could ever be contained on celluloid. The story of Doris Bither, the woman whose life inspired the classic horror film, is one of addiction, abuse, and spectral rape. It's not for the weak of heart. The haunting of Doris Bither was a true nightmare scenario. She was being raped and her children assaulted on an almost nightly basis, and there was nothing that could be done about it. The Entity is one of the few movies based on true events that manages to capture the feeling of desperation that the real-life counterparts surely felt, but it still can't come anywhere close to the real horror that Bither was forced to endure until the day she died. In 1974, Doris Bither, a mother of four, was living with her children in a small house in Culver City. She began to suffer a series of physical attacks that she claims were perpetrated by a group of ghosts. Rather than what most would consider a, quote, normal, haunting, unquote, weird things happening around the house and such, Bither claimed that she was being raped by the phantoms. This may seem far-fetched, but the concept of spectral rape goes back to the time of ancient Greek literature, and modern scientists have tied this phenomenon to sleep paralysis. Sleep paralysis affects 20% of the population and sometimes occurs when a person wakes up before finishing their REM cycle. But was Bither experiencing sleep paralysis or something much more terrifying? While she was alive, Bither claimed that she wasn't just attacked by one ghost, but three different entities would attack her on a regular basis. Two of them, she said, were small creatures, and they would hold her down, while the largest of the entities would be the one who raped her. Her sons got so used to seeing the ghost that they referred to the ghost that they saw the most as Mr. Who's It. One of her sons claimed to have seen Bither thrown around the room by an invisible phenomenon. He claims that when he tried to stop the attacks he was also tossed away like loose garbage bither's eldest son brian harris described the entities as like a fog or like a human but not quite the attacks against bither were particularly brutal and they went on for years bither was tossed around the room slapped and raped almost nightly her sons recall seeing major scarring on her legs and thighs as if someone had grabbed her. Bither's oldest son, Brian Harris, claims to have witnessed many of the attacks. In an interview from 2009, he says that because his bedroom was next door to his mother's room, he would have to listen to the assaults as they happened, and in a few cases, he actually saw her being beaten by an invisible force. It was like a man was standing in front of my mother and would start to beat her. Imagine a woman being beaten. You could see her being picked up and thrown around the room. Sounds, slaps. But there was no one there to actually do it, he continued. We all felt it, too. Pulling, biting, and scratching. We were all attacked. According to Bither's sons, she wasn't the only one in the house who was being attacked by these ghostly creatures. The members of her family who would speak out about the incident claimed that at different times throughout the years, they experienced things in the house as well. They say one of them was slapped by a creature, one of them bumped into an invisible man in the hallway, and the eldest son found a way to make the ghost particularly excited. Bither's eldest son alleges that whenever he would listen to Black Sabbath or Uriah Heep, that there would be an increase in paranormal activity around the home. He claims that music would set off a chain reaction of orbs appearing around the house and the house lights would turn on and off. It's impossible to say what actually causes any haunting. Some researchers believe that a haunting is caused by negative energy in a home stemming from a curse or past violence on the land. Other paranormal investigators believe that those who are haunted bring it on themselves. Unfortunately, Bethur passed away in 1999, and towards the end of her life, she seemed to go out of her way to avoid discussing the case that had brought her so much pain throughout her life. Some reports say she suffered from childhood abuse, and her son Brian said that she was disowned by her family after a major altercation in her teens. Some paranormal researchers allege that Doris spent her teens taking part in seances and toying with dark magic. Without speaking directly to Bither, there's no way to know for sure exactly what happened in her childhood that would attract spirits toward her. But the one thing that is certain is that she's led an incredibly tumultuous and tortured life. After the spectral rape started to become a normal thing in the Bither household, a group of paranormal investigators were called in to see if they could figure out what was going on. The group of around 30 investigators set up cameras to catch anything happening while they were in the home. After everything was in place, they had Bither conjure the entities. According to a later report, Bither went into a frenzy and began to swear and taunt the spirits while the investigators watched. Allegedly, light orbs began to manifest in the room, followed by a green mist that snaked out from a corner of the room. Investigators claim a mist formed in the shape of a human torso and a series of muscles. After having their film developed, The investigators were dismayed to find that none of this had been captured on camera, save for a free arc, something that looks like a rainbow that was floating above Bither, freely, not reflecting off the wall, but just, it was there. An interesting note to the paranormal investigator story comes from Bither's son, Brian, who was just out of elementary school at the time of the attacks. He claims that the presence of the paranormal investigators exacerbated the haunting making his home wife a complete hell. He told an interviewer in 2009, when the team would show up, I hated it because I knew as soon as they left, they would become so angry that the house would just come alive. Trying to pin down a reason behind such a violent and horrific assault is impossible. One must assume that whatever type of energy creates a spirit is capable of holding the same disgusting, vile sentiments that rapists have. Putting any logic into this kind of visceral, demeaning assault is tantamount to banging your head against a wall. Plenty of researchers have formed theories as to why Bither was attacked. Unfortunately, they all placed the blame squarely on her shoulders. It's an awful logical leap with the scenario with no logic. One paranormal researcher's theory is that Bither was psychic or had psychic tendencies and that her negative energy either made her an easy target for the passing spirits. Another theory is that because powerful men had abused Doris, she may have subconsciously materialized her attackers. There are also theories that because she dabbled in the occult as a teen, that she had made herself a portal for these evil creatures. The most sound theory is that she was suffering from sleep paralysis. But that doesn't really account for how she would have received bruises on her inner thighs or how her children were also assaulted by invisible creatures. There are some supernatural theories outside the underlying theory that Bither was raped by ghosts. The one that makes the most sense is that she may have been the victim of a poltergeist scenario, which is different from a normal haunting. Poltergeists are different from ghosts in that they're non-corporeal. They're incredibly noisy energy beings that manifest in times of overbearing negative energy. By all accounts, Bither was an alcoholic who wasn't receiving any treatment for her addiction. With four kids in the house, it's entirely likely that there was a lot of negative emotions floating around. This is the perfect breeding ground for a poltergeist. Bither and her children may have been at their wits' end and managed to create a harmful energy that ran amuck throughout the household. The Bither house still exists in Culver City, California, but according to reports from people who lived there after Bither, there haven't been any further signs of a haunting. The remaining members of the Bither family claim that after they moved out of the house, the horrible events continued. It would appear that this is a case of a person being haunted rather than a place. This information gives credence to the idea that Bither and her sons either experienced intense poltergeist activity or that she had managed to open a portal within herself to another dimension. Whatever the case, Culver City doesn't appear to be a place anyone needs to avoid. Following Bither's cry for help among the paranormal investigative community, a book was written about her experience in 1978, titled the Entity by Frank Felita. In 1982, he adapted his book for the screen, and Sidney J. Fury, a director most well-known for the film Lady Sings the Blues, among with Lady Bugs with Rodney Dangerfield, directed the piece. To say that Sidney Fury was not a horror director is true because he directed such a wide variety of films. According to an interview with Room Org from 2012, Fury went out of his way to keep from learning anything about the actual case, and the film is a very loose adaptation of the actual events. as something I said earlier. In any case, Martin Scorsese apparently loved the film and put it on his list of the 11 scariest movies he had ever seen. So it's a question I've asked before. Can people be haunted or... Is it just places? I think it's people can be haunted. When I talked about the Amityville horror before, I said that it could have been that the family was haunted, not the place. That's why people who have lived in the house since then have said there's nothing wrong with the place. So this may be a similar case. It may be someone is haunted for some reason and not some place. It said that Doris Bither and her family moved several times after this movie came out, the story broke, and says that each time she moved, the attacks followed but somewhat lessened in degree until after a few years they just quit happening. But if this has happened in your past, I don't think you can get rid of it mentally that easy. So the entity. Was it real? Was it a figment of her imagination? Was it a creation of her imagination? I think it was real. I remember reading the book and Frank DiFellita could write a book. It scared me to death. But the movie was good too. When it got to the investigation and they built that fake house and they put in the freezing jets and that kind of thing. It it got very interesting from a scientific point of view but then it was kind of a letdown because there was no way science could prove what was happening or not happening so it's one of the movies that I like I like this kind of movie it was scary it was from what you could tell truthful but the thing is if it happened or not the story was great those who knew Doris Bithur said that these things did happen to her Her friends say that it happened. The kids say it happened. So all I can say is I hope she found peace at last. That's the show for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you'll be back next week with episode 35. Remember that you can listen to Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast on Monday nights with Aaron Hunter. On Tuesday, you can listen to Aaron's Horror Show with Aaron Frail. Wednesdays, it's me, Terry's Mysterious Moments. On some Thursdays, you can get Patrick Sean Jones with the Sandman Lullaby. You can go to your app store, either on Apple or on Android, and look for the Real Paranormal Activity app, the RPA app. Download that, install it into your, into your device, and you can get all four of our shows without having to search for them on the internet having to use another podcatcher to get the shows well have a good week thanks for listening we'll talk to you later bye-bye